It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. James L. Kugel is one of the foremost scholars of the Hebrew Bible of our time, and Kugel recently visited the Maxwell Institute at Brigham Young University to talk about his work and about the relationship between religious faith and scholarship about Scripture. Kugel himself is an Orthodox Jew and a scholar of the Hebrew Bible who became somewhat legendary for revisiting ancient paradigms of reading. When he taught at Harvard, one of Kugel's students said the professor began a course by offering this disclaimer, if you come from a religious tradition upholding the literal truth of the Bible, you could find this course disturbing. Kugel told me that isn't exactly the case. There's much more to the story and we'll talk about that in this episode of the Maxwell Institute podcast on how to read the Bible with James L. Kugel. Questions and comments about this and other episodes can be sent to mipodcast at byu.edu. And don't forget to rate and review the show in iTunes. James Kugel joins me on the Maxwell Institute podcast. He's here from Israel visiting BYU uh, to meet with our journal editors of the studies in the Bible and antiquity. Thank you so much for taking time to come and talk to me today. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Now, we're talking about a book called How to Read the Bible. The subtitle is A Guide to Scripture Then and Now, and that subtitle kind of hints at what the book is about, which is that the Bible has been approached in different ways in, at different times. And this book came out about 10 years ago. Was it 2007? Oh, that sounds so long. But yeah, I guess yeah. that's true. So you're coming up on the 10-year anniversary of its publication, and it's already a monument. It's a well-known book. It made a really big splash. Uh, and broadly speaking, how did the book come about? How did this particular book, what was its genesis? Well, I uh, used to teach at Harvard, and, uh, and it was a pretty big course. And I guess in some sense this represents uh, the course I ended up teaching. When I first arrived at Harvard, a colleague suggested that uh, courses, just, uh, courses about the Hebrew Bible were for the most part courses in modern scholarship uh, of the Hebrew Bible. And uh, he knew that I was interested in some of the ways the Bible was first interpreted. And so uh, the course that I taught was called uh, uh, The Bible and Its Interpreters. And uh, I wouldn't say this is an exact transcription, but a lot of the things that I put in here I um, got to by teaching that course. That course sort of informed what became this book, and it's, it's a large book. It covers the span of the Hebrew Bible, and it talks about interpretation of the Bible over time. A lot of people today see a sharp conflict between biblical scholarship and traditional understanding of the Bible. How did this particular circumstance come about? This is, this is a problem of our time. Well, um, that was really the whole subject of the course and the whole subject of, of this book. Uh, I guess I started uh, sort of by accident when I uh, became aware of a school of interpreters, or I should say several schools, that existed toward the end of the biblical period and a little bit thereafter. They were not, uh, how should I say, passive interpreters. They had a definite program. When they came along, much of the Hebrew Bible had been around for hundreds of years. Uh, and when they came to explain different parts of it, it wasn't um, necessarily an objective explanation. They were really out to show how uh, the Bible is relevant to us today and uh, to make it that, uh, to um, look into the Bible's words deeply in order to find some uh, message for today. So they shifted the way that the Bible 
came to be interpreted. And today we've sort of lost sight of that. And so as the book details, that's ended up causing problems when scholarly interpretations bump up against traditional interpretations. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. But I wanted to bring up a piece that was written about you in Moment Magazine a little while ago by a writer called Michael Orbach. And uh, he starts off his piece about you with a story of how he was warned against taking your class at Harvard. You mentioned teaching there uh, because he, he was told, although you look like an Orthodox Jew, you have a yarmulke, you have, you, you know, you, you're, you are an Orthodox Jew and, and your views on scripture would lead to a faith crisis. This is kind of what he was warned about. When traditional belief runs up against modern scholarship, bad things can happen. So he said you'd begin your class with a disclaimer, even. You would say, if you come from a religious tradition upholding the literal truth of the Bible, you could find this course disturbing. First of all, is that true? Did you start with a disclaimer? And then, if so, what kind of things would people be disturbed about? Uh, well, I, that wasn't my disclaimer. Uh, I, uh, I never talked about the literal truth, but I did say um, since the point of the, of the course and, frankly, of the book is to contrast the way the Bible has always been understood for centuries and centuries and the way it's come to be re-understood now by um, modern biblical scholars. And I was always careful to say modern biblical scholars probably doesn't uh, necessarily include your own rabbi or minister, <laughs> um, but somebody, you know, people who teach at these uh, uh, you know, universities where uh, modern scholarship is pursued, um, trying to understand the text in terms of its original historical setting and uh, with the help of everything that modern historians and archaeologists and linguists have learned about the meaning of the text, uh, that, that new information jangles somewhat with uh, traditional teachings. So if you're really intent on holding on to your uh, traditional in, uh, teachings and without any of these disturbing new interpretations, this may not be the book for you. Would you have students who would sort of leave at that point or, or d did people kind of stick around there? Actually, I don't ever remember anybody walking yeah. out. <laughs> <laughs> but you might as well put all your cards out on the table when you when you start out the class. I, I mean, I first of all, I think that's fair. Yeah. Uh, after a while, uh, people like uh, M Michael, I guess, came for, uh, forewarned, and some of them took the class and some of them didn't. Uh, I think a lot of Orthodox Jews, or as many as there were, tended to say, at least one said this to me once, that uh, it's better to take a, a seminar with Professor Kugel that just talks about, you know, kind of traditional interpretation and doesn't bring in the modern stuff. <laughs> so, if, yeah, if you're zooming in a little bit closer on a particular text, instead of sort of giving a whole sweep, it might be easier to digest. Well, also because the, those seminars that I taught required people usually to know Hebrew, and they were really about traditional Hebrew mm -hmm. interpretation. So let's talk a little bit more about the traditional understanding. There are things that uh, the assumptions that are brought to the text, and these were established a long time ago, I'm thinking of Moses Maimonides and, and some of the things he said about the Hebrew Scriptures. So what are some of these elements of traditional understanding that would come to be challenged? 
Well, if you're asking about the assumptions that uh, people brought to the reading of the Bible in ancient times, uh, that was something that I, I think that's really a, an important subject because the assumptions that people bring to reading, you know, pretty much determine uh, what they're going to understand. Uh, as I mentioned, I kind of got to studying this stuff by accident, but. Uh, after a while, I had read a pretty good cross-section of Jews who lived in, say, the 3rd century, 2nd century, uh, before the Common Era, and how um, they understood the text. Now, these people were very different one from another. Um, for the most part, we don't know the names of ancient biblical interpreters. We just know the things that they wrote, and they usually wrote them anonymously or else uh, taking on uh, the name of some early biblical figure. Uh, but some of these people we do know by name, and whether we know them by name or not, uh, I, I, at least after a while I think I developed a pretty good idea of who they were. And they didn't have a lot in common with each other. Uh, to just take uh, one example, there, one of the people whose names we do know is uh, ben Sira, or Sirach, as he's called in uh, some Bibles. And uh, uh, he was definitely a kind of establishment figure close to the sources of power in post-exilic uh, Judea. Uh, I'm sure he wouldn't have sat at the same lunch counter as the fellow who wrote the Book of Jubilees, somebody who we don't, we don't know who, you know, what his name was. And then, you know, both of them were very different from another ancient interpreter, Philo of Alexandria. Alexandria was a, a Greek-speaking city in Egypt, and um, Philo probably didn't speak a word of Hebrew. So, they, you know, these are all uh, very different figures, but they all seem to share the same set of assumptions about the Bible and how it was to be read. And you talk about four of them in particular in how to read the Bible. What are these four assumptions? Well, the first uh, assumption, they all I, I guess they were all sort of counterintuitive assumptions. The first assumption was that um, the Bible says X, but often what it really means is Y, that there's a, a, you know, a gap between the you know, meaning of the text and, and its um, actual form of expression. And, of course, we don't assume that about most texts. It means what it says. But uh, this, uh, you know, and I, I suppose I have my own theory about where these assumptions came from. But uh, in any case, everybody seems to assume that. And so the interpreter's job was not to tell you the things that you yourself could figure out, because, you know, what would you need me for? But the, uh, the interpreter would say, well, now, you know, it says this, but if you think about it in the light of this other verse or this other meaning of that word, it means something rather different from what you thought. That was the first basic assumption of all ancient interpreters. So that's number one, and it's funny because it's almost like uh, assuming some cryptic message that requires the interpreter then, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I am, you may think it was kind of self-interested, <laughs> that you know, that's why you need to hire me. These people, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm you not sure how many of them needed to be hired. It was in some ways uh, being a, an ancient sage was 
a rich man's uh, profession. He could devote himself to these spiritual matters because his uh, uh, material concerns were taken care of. But in any case, that, uh, that, that was the message. You do need me to understand. As I used to like to tell students, these interpreters were not hapless academics. Nobody you know, really cares what modern uh, <laughs> academics think, but uh, they were, uh, people listened to them. And, and after you told me that this text means this, well, that is what it meant. So they, they in that sense, had tremendous power over the future of the Bible. What was the second big assumption? Well, I guess the second one was, um, I, I already hinted towards it, uh, these texts were very old, at least some of them, hundreds and hundreds of years older than the interpreters. But um, they, uh, the second assumption was that they're nevertheless relevant. They're talking about the past, but they're really, um, you know, speaking to me and telling me something that's altogether relevant to myself. So sometimes, you know, for, for example, Philo of Alexandria, since I've mentioned him, um, like to read uh, biblical texts as great allegories. Uh, so there is, he says at one point, uh, talking about Abraham, there really was this fellow named Abraham, and he really did migrate from his native city of Ur of the Chaldeans and then went up to Haran, about a, uh, 700, 800 miles north, and then went from there to Canaan. And this all really happened, he says. But... Actually, Abraham, in, in the truer sense, represents the soul of anyone in search of God. And that's what this journey is all about. Uh, and if you're listening to that, well, you know, I don't much care about somebody who lived, you know, so many centuries ago. But I do care about my soul, and I am in search of God. So his story is my story, and keep on telling me about it. That, that's just one way in which um, the past was made relevant to the present. But the Bible became a book all about uh, the reader's own present. You know, it gives laws. And, and if I were to, again, if I were to read the laws of Hammurabi or some other ancient figure, well, that's an interesting law, but what does that have to do with me? When people read biblical laws, it was you know, simply an assumption that they were there to be obeyed today. This is one of the assumptions that Christian interpreters would pick up on as well in order to find elements of what became Christianity in the Hebrew scriptures, right? Absolutely. This allegorical thing of saying, okay, this old story of Abraham sacrificing his son is sort of a type of God sending Jesus Christ who would similarly be sacrificed. So this, these interpretations, these assumptions would, uh, that, that Jewish interpreters were using would also inform Christian ones, right? So uh, Absolutely. Those Christian interpreters were... Uh, you know, very much, I mean, you know, uh, f from the beginning, Christianity did not declare itself to be a different, uh, you know, religion. The first uh, uh, Christians were, were Jews, and then as it uh, broadened its audience, nevertheless, um, a lot of things were inherited from Judaism, including this whole way of thinking about how to interpret Scripture. There wasn't yet a New Testament uh, as such, uh, but, there, the, but everybody believed in them. Um, 
the sanctity and the importance of uh, the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, it's important, I think, for Christian readers to remember that when the New Testament is talking about Scripture, in most cases it is referring to the Hebrew Scriptures and not what has become the Christian Bible as a whole. Absolutely. Um, So what's the third big assumption? Uh, I guess um, the um, uh, third assumption is that um, these texts are essentially perfect. Uh, that is to say, to begin with, there is no contradiction between what's said here in the book of Ezekiel and what's said here in the Pentateuch. Uh, and uh, there was every reason to think there would be if it were an ordinary text. You know, if you have two pieces of writing that you know, uh, are separated by hundreds of years or if you have um, uh, writings that come from different parts of society, this was written by... As someone who was a priest, like Ezekiel, for example, and this was written by somebody else, uh, you would expect there to be differences. Uh, but, w- but it was uh, an assumption that these uh, texts all came from, uh, you know, all were completely consonant with each other. And that idea of perfection eventually came to um, spread out into um, other corollary notions uh, that uh, there, of course, can't be any mistakes in these texts, and if there seem to be mistakes or inconsistencies or contradictions, then it's the interpreter's job to uh, uh, make sure that those are not understood in that way. And it was, uh, you know, kind of a job they embraced readily. They believed that, and and they were eager to prove it in uh, every case. It seems to be an assumption that would play really well with the first assumption, because if, if there's some sort of cryptic meaning that, that the interpreter needs to draw out of the text, if you did see a fissure in the text, that was just an interpretive opportunity waiting for you to... Absolutely right. Yeah. So there's three. We've got three down. There was one more big assumption. Uh, the, yeah, the fourth assumption was that basically all these texts, uh, we, we don't really have a Bible yet, but a collection of sacred writings, that all these texts are, um, came from God or were somehow um, uh, divinely inspired or initiated. Uh, and, of course, nobody had any doubt. Um, just even the ordinary uh, Jew in the street that, uh, you know, if it said, and the Lord said to Moses, saying dot, 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 the dot, dot, dot were the words of God. But eventually everything, every word of these texts came to be um, uh, attributed to God. So even the introductory phrase, and the Lord said to Moses, uh, there's, for example, the book of Psalms that uh, really consists of words of thanksgiving and praise as well as requests that are all directed to God. So if they're addressed to God, how can they come from God? But uh, that wasn't a problem for ancient interpreters. They simply assumed as part of this uh, overall view of sacred scripture that, um, that these psalms too had uh, come from God. I, I mention this as, as the fourth assumption because as best I, I could tell from reading over this material, and, and if you think this material is small, you're wrong. It really is. There's more of that than there is of the Bible that yeah. it's comment, uh, commenting on. Uh, but, um, you know, as I, I tried to piece things together, this was at least uh, uh, less explicitly said 
about these texts than the first three things. You can find these assertions um, easily enough, but um, for one reason or another, uh, it, it uh, probably came in uh, a little bit later and became, in any case, an important thing to say only at a later stage. So roughly speaking, about when, time-wise, did these particular assumptions start to lock in, and what were the ways of, of reading these books before those assumptions? So how, how, how did they represent changes? Well, now that's a, a, a very tricky question. <laughs> uh, if we were to start uh, um, at the beginning, I, 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 in talking about these ancient interpreters, I'm talking about people uh, whose writings were never part of the Bible. They're called, um, by, um, in English, uh, they have this very uh, unwieldy name of the Biblical Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha. Uh, the Apocrypha uh, are actually printed with um, a number of Christian Bibles, and they're books that um, really um, seem to have been part of Scripture for a long time, and eventually um, Jerome uh, kind of separated them out because the Jews with whom he had studied separated them out. Um, uh, the Pseudepigrapha is a much less easily defined uh, group of texts and, and much bigger. Um, but it includes uh, such things, uh, I'll name my favorites, the Book of Jubilees that was written probably right around the year 200 before the Common Era, or the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs uh, that were uh, you know, written uh, later than that, maybe the first century. Um, there's, um, the, you know, the uh, Book of Ben Sirah, or Sirach, that's part of the... Uh, uh, part of the biblical apocrypha. He was a, an interpreter of scripture as well as a classical sage, uh, and so on and so forth. Before all of that, uh, we have evidence of interpretation going on within the Hebrew Bible. Later books interpret, make mention of earlier books, and sometimes they make mention of them so you can see that they're already interpreting according to these uh, same principles. So that would take you back a good ways and into the thicket of modern theories about how biblical books came to be written. So these four assumptions get locked in and then we have schools of interpretation and different interpreters. Um, and, and you've referred to this, uh, is this, is this what you refer to as the interpretive revolution when you talk about that? Absolutely. Uh, before these people came on, um, uh, we do know something about how uh, biblical books uh, were interpreted, and um, it was, I, I, uh, I sometimes, uh, I don't think I talked about this in that book because the image occurred to me a little bit later, but uh, generally we think about um, the text of what became the Hebrew Bible as a kind of great uh, funnel. By we here, I mean modern biblical scholars. Uh, modern scholars know that almost every book in the Bible underwent a process of editing and revision. In fact, much <laughs> editing and revisions. So um, that uh, uh, according to many modern scholars, our book of Isaiah used to be considerably shorter. So did the book of Jeremiah and on and on. 
So um, that was kind of at the top of a great funnel where you could add 27 chapters to the book of Isaiah and, and nobody would complain, uh, or at least we don't know of anybody complaining. Uh, but as time went on, you couldn't really uh, modify the text too much. This brings me to that great font of information recently discovered, the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we look at the Dead Sea Scrolls and we can see that um, by the time these were being written, texts were taking uh, something like their final shape. You could add in a little thing here or there, a clarification, a gloss, um, uh, try to correct what you saw as an inconsistency. Um, we have texts of plenty of uh, biblical books uh, that uh, seem to be following those marching orders. but. The big change is what I used to call the heavy lifting of the most ancient you know, scribes and um, tradents of uh, biblical books. Uh, that stuff was done until finally you get to the bottom of this funnel and you can't change anything. They're really standard texts and uh, eventually even the pronunciation of every word came to be written down and defined, in, in, at least in Hebrew. So it, it looks like a funnel that really closes at the bottom. But that's wrong. The whole image, I, I, I made up the image and now I'm telling you that it's wrong. <laughs> um, it, it, what really happened was somewhere around the middle of the funnel, there suddenly appeared these ancient interpreters. Here they are in the third uh, you know, century before the Common Era. And uh, they're saying, yeah, that's what the text says, and I'm not going to change what the text says, but I'm going to tell you what it really means is not what it sounds like it means. And so the great freedom to uh, uh, change the text, um, uh, you know, became even greater with these interpreters. You didn't need to fiddle with the words. You just need to, uh, to explain them in a new way. And that freedom, of course, led not only into rabbinic Judaism, but also into Christianity. That's James Kugel. He's a former chair of the Institute for the History of the Jewish Bible at Bar Ilan University. He's also an emeritus professor of classical and modern Hebrew literature at Harvard University. He's written or edited over a dozen books on the Hebrew Bible and its interpreters. He's one of the most celebrated biblical scholars of our time. And today, he's joining me here at Brigham Young University talking about the book, How to Read the Bible. So what happens is people, interpreters of the Bible, people that are looking at the Bible, start to notice problems in the text that demand some sort of explanation, differences in accounts. Um, for example, the miracle at the Reed Sea is depicted in one account as in sort of naturalistic terms and another uh, depicted sort of miraculously. Talk about some of these other examples of things that people started noticing in the text, and it happened pretty early on, too. For example, uh, the five books of Moses talk about Moses' death, for instance. That's pretty hard to do if you assume Moses wrote it, that he you know, wrote about his own death. So, Right. Well, of course, that had an easy <laughs> enough answer. Moses was a prophet. He certainly uh, could foresee his own death. But more generally, um, what we're talking about is two completely different approaches to um, understanding the text. Uh, the ancient interpreters were immensely significant. They established the way the Bible would be read for centuries and centuries into the future. Um, the early Christians uh, inherited 
their approach, uh, the, the earlier interpreters' approach to, uh, to the Bible, and um, expanded upon it. Uh, eventually, medieval Christian interpreters were famous for having four different understandings of each and every verse uh, <laughs> in the Bible. I, th I think in practice that was never upheld, but um, the classical examples were the word Jerusalem. What does that mean? And literally it means a city, and then it has an allegorical meaning and an anagogical, and, and so forth. So um, that uh, fourfold exegesis was a hallmark of of um, uh, Roman Catholic interpreters, uh, uh, you know, throughout the Middle Ages, what really changed things, I, I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not sure there was any one particular thing that really changed things. Uh, I used to talk about the Renaissance in Eastern European thought, which you know started even when it started is disputed by historians today. But let's say starting in the 14th or 15th. Uh, century certainly, and um, and originally the you know Renaissance was was focused on texts, uh, not biblical texts, but uh, what we would call uh, classical texts. Uh, uh, suddenly they had access to ancient writings of you know Greek philosophers in Greek, and uh, they were able to learn Greek. Uh, one of the things that really helped was the inventing of the printing press. And then you could just get a nice um, a manual about how to read Greek and a basic vocabulary, all written in Latin, which everybody knew. And, uh, and the same thing happened with Hebrew. Do-it-yourself um, do Hebrew suddenly became <laughs> a, a, a Christian uh, uh, occupation. And uh, they had, um, up until then, the, the translation of uh, the Hebrew Bible into Latin that was done by Jerome. It was called, uh, uh, well, he liked to refer to it as the Hebraica Veritas, uh, the Hebrew truth. You know, he had studied the text in Hebrew and uh, rendered it into his own beautiful Latin. But now people said, well, you know, I don't see why Jerome translated this word that way. And those kind of questions lasted for about 50 years. And then people start saying, well, Jerome was wrong, and I'm going to translate it, and I'll translate it better. And um, that coincided with the um, search for, you know, vernacular translations, things that everybody could understand, because they would be in the debased form of Latin that was French or Italian or whatever. Um, that, in any case, uh, that was the spur to... Um, uh, uh, the Bible taking its place in a list of complaints that the uh, earliest Protestants had about the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they, the famous things, the things that you know Americans learn in high school, uh, include corruption in the church and you know paying money to attain forgiveness or more money to attain high office in the church and the church's ownership of great huge tracts of land. Um, but uh, the Bible also had a role in that. People said, well, you know, the way the church tells us to interpret the Bible, not just in jo Jerome's translation, which was really a pretty faithful translation, but in, um, you know, the glossa ordinaria, any kind of standard way of reading these verses with all the meanings that I mentioned, allegorical and so forth, 
He said, well, now maybe this guy Abraham doesn't represent anybody's soul. He was just a historical person who lived. And um, that became a way of uh, uh, hitting the papacy over the head. You know, if, uh, if these interpretations are all wrong, why should we listen to them? Why should we listen to the church officials who expound them? And out of that, in part, developed uh, the Protestant Reformation. So it became a real um, uh, preoccupation to just read the Bible on its own terms, to read the words and understand them for what they say and forget about all these old traditions of interpretation. I, I'm being a little sloppy in my formation. It didn't all just happen like that. And, and certainly traditional interpretations continued for uh, quite a while. But this was really the beginning of the um, movement that we call modern biblical scholarship. What were Jewish interpreters doing at that time while the Protestant Reformation was underway? Well, they had had their problems a little bit earlier. Uh, Jews uh, used to live in great numbers in Arab uh, lands. And, um, uh, of course, once uh, Islam started in, uh, uh, you know, 6th, 7th centuries, um, this uh, it became a, a kind of agenda item of early Islamic writers to show why the Quran was so much better than uh, either Christianity or uh, or Judaism, and uh, and they had some good arguments, and so the uh, the Jews really had to defend the the Bible against the uh, Islamic onslaught, as well as uh, there was a kind of break within Judaism. And uh, the movement that's called uh, Karaism uh, had um, already started. That was really, a, 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 in an odd way, a, a defense of Judaism in the face of Islam, but at the expense of the writings of these uh, ancient uh, rabbinical interpreters. So that all had played itself out in the 10th and the 11th, uh, 12th century. By now, um, they... Uh, they too were uh, interested in what the words meant because a lot of traditional interpreters' interpretations had been, um, at least some of them, had been based on a faulty understanding of Hebrew grammar. Uh, the Arabs uh, studied the uh, grammar of, uh, of Islamic Arabic, which was not the language that they spoke. It was similar, but uh, they needed to establish the rules of uh, of the grammar of the Quran. And the Jews said, well, we could do the same thing. And they began to study the grammar of biblical Hebrew and distinguish it from later periods of Hebrew. And all this uh, uh, caused them to um, uh, have a new appreciation of the literal meaning of the text. And uh, uh, so that's pretty much uh, where they were before even um, the Protestant Reformation came along. Through this period of, of different approaches to learning and knowledge, people start noticing as they're reading the Hebrew Scriptures different differences in the text or, or fissures in the text again. And what are some specific examples of those that people kind of uh, today might not even be particularly aware of? Well, uh, I, I guess I might approach this from the other side and tell you some great interpretations that had existed that came to be rejected. Yeah. Uh, uh, I guess everybody knows the story of Adam and Eve, and uh, in that story, uh, uh, God tells Adam, uh, you know, you can eat anything from this garden here, but uh, 
Uh, that tree that's right in the middle of the garden, uh, don't eat any of the fruit of that tree because on the day that you eat of it, you will die. On the day that you eat of it, you will die. But that, that isn't really what happened. Adam goes on to live a healthy life of 930 years. Uh, we don't pretty good. Know, we don't know how old Eve was, but I assume she must have been. <laughs> pretty much that old, you know, I'd like to be punished like that. <laughs> <laughs> so they had to figure out um, what that meant. And there were um, two common interpretations. One was that um, when God says on the day, he's not talking about one of our days, um, you know, 24 hours, but uh, a day of God's. And how long does a day of God's last? Well, according to Psalm 90, uh, God's day lasts um, a thousand years. Uh, you know, a, uh, um, a thousand years are in your uh, sight uh, like an evening gone, like a, a watch at night, it actually says. Um, well, uh, so then if God says to Adam on the day that you eat of it, he might mean, uh, you know, in that thousand year period that you you'll you'll at some point die and and if he did live to the you know, age of 930 then he died sometime in the late afternoon of one of god's days uh, so that was a good explanation but there was ultimately another one that w was even better and it was not that you'll fall over dead not in that sense on the day that you but on the day that you eat of it um you'll become mortal and this explanation works if you assume that, um, that human beings were originally put into this garden to live forever. There is a tree there called the tree of life. We're not really told what its function was, but maybe eating its fruit would just keep you living forever and ever. But uh, they ate the other fruit and were kicked out of the garden. And ever since then, uh, human beings have been uh, mortal. Well, those were two wonderful explanations and a good example of the way these ancient interpreters interpreted. And, of course, this was a very important um, assumption for early Christians. They weren't probably the first people to put it forward, but, uh, uh, but uh, whatever, it, it <laughs> ended up being a, a great theme of Christianity. Now these people came along and said, well, no, you know, on the day of, you know, these early modern scholars— uh, is just a way of saying when. When you eat of it, you will die. And, um, and uh, you know, whatever the else that meant, uh, it didn't necessarily mean either of these two. Maybe God was just a, uh, the same sort of bad parent that uh, I was, you know, making vain threats or things that took a while to be uh, punishments that took a while to be carried out. They didn't necessarily have a better explanation, but... Um, that might be a good example of uh, the way everything was now looked at in, in a new light. I mean, you mentioned earlier the uh, crossing of the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted, but now people began to read those different accounts, and some people said uh, maybe the sea really didn't part, or maybe it was just a kind of, you know, as, as the biblical text itself says, there was a strong wind that caused the waters to become passable, maybe not exactly dry, and all the rest is biblical exaggeration. It would be the sort of thing that uh, some modern scholars said. Those type of things can 
for some people, undermine confidence in the overall book. And so we're going to start to see defenses of the Bible um, be put forth because of the assumption that the text needs to be perfect in order to be the Word of God, right? So if, if the assumption went from, you talked about how every word then was assumed to have come from God, so and God needs to be trustworthy, and so God wouldn't misreport crossing of the sea or, or how many animals Noah was supposed to take on the ark, whether it was two or whether it was seven. And so some apologetic solutions start to get proposed. Maybe you could give some example uh, examples of these. Well, I'd say, frankly, this conflict between trying to read, you know, there are no bad guys in this story. These modern scholars are, oddly enough, for the most part, uh, themselves clergymen. There weren't quite yet clergywomen at the beginning. And, or um, uh, even more uh, typically the child or children of uh, clergy people. Um, they, they were just uh, uh, kind of caught between a desire to find out everything they could and, um, and on the other hand to kind of uphold the religion. Um, one of the most influential of the early modern scholars, well, not all that early, end of the 19th century, was um, a German scholar named uh, Julius Wellhausen. Uh, in general, um, Germany, that is to say Protestant Germany, was a, a real home of modern biblical scholarship in the 19th century as it is today. Um, and uh, uh, Wellhausen taught at a uh, uh, religious seminary, and, and he wrote a famous letter uh, of resignation in which he said, uh, you know, I, I started off studying the Bible because, you know, I thought it was important for people to, uh, who are going to be uh, clergymen um, uh, to know everything that we can find out about the Bible. Now, after some years, I realized that uh, I'm not preparing them to be uh, good ministers at all. I'm only putting more doubts into their head, and uh, that's not what I set out to do. Unfortunately, I think he had another uh, job uh, waiting in the wings. He became a professor um, uh, of you know, the history of uh, the Old Testament. But um, that's a, a conflict that's been around uh, since before Wellhausen, really f from the beginning of modern biblical scholarship. I talked about translations uh, as the beginning, but really these kind of critical approaches to when biblical books were put together and by whom and for what purpose, I guess we could um, date that to the beginning of the 19th century. Uh, and it continues uh, to this day. And uh, it, uh, you know, the, uh, I guess the goal of many scholars <laughs> is what I once uh, called uh, uh, having your Bible and criticizing it too. Uh, and it, it does have a certain contradiction uh, inherent in it. And, and uh, consequently, there's a, a certain amount of double talk that goes uh, with um, a lot of biblical scholarship. Yes, it says this, but on the other hand, look at this redeeming feature. And so this is kind of the conflict that continues today, This these problems that crop up between historical criticism of the Bible 
and investigations of the Bible's culture, context, archaeological discoveries, comparisons to other literature from times and locations similar to the Bible, things in the Bible that seem to be based on human error, and these type of things that undermine confidence in the relevance for the Bible today. And one thing that you've written here, I have a quote from you where you say, uh, the Torah's divine character is not an issue that modern biblical scholarship can ever seek to address. It's entirely a matter of belief. So you seem to, instead of plowing into biblical scholarship in order to bolster faith in the Bible, you sort of separate those two activities and say that faith in in the Bible is separate from the historical investigations that you've done in your own work. Is that an accurate description? Well, I, 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 th- I think that is, but I, I might put it a little differently, I, you know, kind of more concretely. If we had a videotape of uh, Moses uh, standing on Mount Sinai and uh, hearing the word of God and then uh, going down the mountain, we still wouldn't know if he was really hearing the word of God, that's just a matter of, of belief. Uh, I said in, in that book that words are words. Uh, they don't come with little flags attached that uh, would tell you, oh, this is a word that God says, and no, this is a word that human beings say. They're all words that human beings say, and that God spoke them to Moses or to any prophet is uh, really uh, a matter that's not given to scholarly investigation. And let it be said uh, to their praise that, uh, that modern scholars don't talk about that. No, no modern scholar I've ever heard of says, well, you know, this part of Isaiah was written by God and this part of Isaiah was written by somebody else. They don't have a red-letter Bible edition where it's like <laughs> things by God are in red. And right. Things- <laughs> that would be... A, uh, horrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I won't propose that to you. Uh, had, okay. Uh, but to, to kind of continue on that same line, here's another quote from you where you say, uh, My own view is that modern biblical scholarship and traditional Judaism are and must always remain completely irreconcilable. The whole attitude underlying such speculation is alien to the spirit of Judaism. Can you expand on that uh, to, to talk a little bit more about what, what you mean by the spirit of Judaism? Well, <laughs> you know, a lot of people um, despise me for having said that. <laughs> yeah, this is why I picked this quote out. So. Um, but, uh, but I really think it's true. I think, um, to begin with, Judaism, I mean, we can go back to those ancient interpreters. Uh, Judaism pretty much canonized those ancient interpreters are the ones who were the students of the students of the students of those interpreters who created what we call rabbinic Judaism, uh, which is the form of Judaism that uh, has survived uh, basically to this day. And it holds that those interpretations really are part of the text. Um, Modern scholars are intent on interpreting what the text really means, but the traditional position of Judaism is we don't need to be told. We already have what it really means. Or to maybe put it a little more um, realistically, the text and the ancient interpretations are all, as it were, one book. And, uh, And to take those interpretations away from that book and say it's just the words on the page of your Bible that, cons- that the Bible consists of is completely inconsistent with the whole idea of Scripture in Judaism. 
it, it wasn't uh, uh, very different for early Christianity. It was not the words on the page or even the words as memorized, but the words plus the interpretations. And then they, you know, uh, got to be standard Christian doctrines, dogma that were, was taught by, uh, by the church. But uh, that all changed with the Renaissance and it's uh, that new way of thinking. I don't mean to say there wouldn't have been modern biblical scholarship if there were not the Reformation. I, I don't believe that's true. In fact, uh, one of the great modern scholars uh, was Spinoza, who was a Jew. And in his famous uh, Tractatus, he lays out in chapters 7 and 8 what could well be called the marching orders of modern biblical scholarship ever since. So this would have come up, but I think if... Um, it was only a matter of Jews fighting with Jews and not taking into consideration uh, the biblical scholarship of uh, Christians following the Reformation. It would have been a different kind of uh, dispute and might have ended differently. I, I could mention in this connection a, a, a kind of counterexample, which is uh, Islam. People have been studying about the Quran, um, uh, I mean to say, about the Quran, how it came, in what order the different surahs were written. Most of this research was done by Jews, or at least by non-Muslims, uh, and it's had absolutely no effect, as best I can see, <laughs> on uh, Islam as a religion. They, uh, you know, they say, well, look, it's it's obvious that the Quran is the most sacred book because it's the most beautiful book, uh, an argument you don't find among Christians or Jews, and uh, it doesn't need any, uh, you know, verification. So uh, uh, the discussion pretty much ends right there. So what happens when? Say there's a young Jew who's been taught all his life that Moses wrote the five books of Moses, and then he goes to school and learns about the documentary hypothesis, the idea that there's these different authors who contributed to what eventually became those five books, and and this student says, well, this is not what I've been taught my whole life, and I'm I'm just going to bag this. I don't see how this could be the Word of God. I'm I'm sure you've encountered... Uh, people that experience that kind of thing, and what's your response to that? How do you, how do you address that? Well, again, I would say um, how the these biblical texts got started off uh, is a matter of a person's own belief. If if you believe uh, that there is a God, um, uh, then uh, you might believe, as I've heard some Jews say, uh, that. God, this God doesn't speak to human beings, that all of Scripture is really just the human reaction to the ineffable divine. And um, I, I understand that, but I don't share that. I, I think um, that uh, the divine is altogether effable, and in fact, I think uh, Fs, uh, God speaks. Uh, and I, I did once say to an exponent of the other view that I just mentioned, I don't know whose vision or whose understanding of God is more absurd, yours or mine. Uh, you know, I believe in a God who can speak to human beings, and you believe in one who can't. Um, but in any case, this all remains in the realm of belief. However, these books came into being, 
it is that interpreted Bible, the Bible plus this, these interpretations um, that really constitute the Bible in Judaism. And that way, it, it is very different from, uh, I think, uh, most mainline Protestant views of, uh, of the Bible. And so I, I, I really, you know, don't think that, that, that those two views are, are combinable. That's James Kugel. He was chair of the Institute for the History of the Jewish Bible at Bar-Ilan University in Israel before he retired. Today we're talking about his book, How to Read the Bible, A Guide to Scripture Then and Now. We'll take a break and come right back. Hey, this is Blair Hodges, host of the Maxwell Institute podcast. During this interview, you might hear some ambient noise in the background, like a bit of wind, a car passing by. That's because Kugel met with me out on the porch of the Brigham Young University's new guest house on campus. It was late afternoon for me, but it was around three in the morning for James Kugel, who was in town from Israel. He and biblical scholars Peter Enns and Candida Moss visited the Maxwell Institute to talk about the relationship between biblical scholarship and religious faith. Is it possible to approach the Bible critically and religiously, how do you do that? The presentations they gave in this workshop will appear in the next issue of the Maxwell Institute's journal, Studies in the Bible and Antiquity, which is due out by the end of the year. A digital subscription to Studies in the Bible and Antiquity, as well as the rest of our journals, costs just $10. You can get your digital pass at mi.byu.edu slash subscribe. We're speaking today with James Kugel. I'm here with him at Brigham Young University. He's visiting campus, and we're talking about his book, How to Read the Bible, A Guide to Scripture Then and Now. I wanted to ask you about how, uh, in your own life, how devotional study works, because you study the Bible in your work, in your scholarship, but you also study the Bible devotionally, religiously. And I wanted, I wondered if those were of a piece, or if there's a different mode that you employ for those different tasks. Well, I, I perhaps should have said it at some point that um, religious study, uh, at least in the in Orthodox Judaism, is not um, uh, often focused strictly on uh, the Bible itself. Uh, people um, read the Bible uh, along with, well, it used to be along with the Aramaic translation of the Bible that uh, sometimes explained things in the spirit of these ancient interpreters. And now uh, they very much uh, read the Bible in the light of a certain medieval a Jewish scholar named Rashi, and he wrote what has ended up being the, you know, definitive, it bothers me that that's so, <laughs> uh, the definitive interpretation of the text. Not that he wasn't a great interpreter, but um, there were others, and I, I guess... You see I was, it as a foreclosure of other I, I, exactly, possibilities. Exactly, that's exactly the right word, and I... I, I you know, there are anthologies of interpretations where Rabbi so-and-so says this and Rabbi X says that. And uh, it's not definitive in that way, and that's why I love it. I, I uh, um, like reading those ancient interpreters and trying to figure out what, what's on their mind, what they're saying. But 
actually, when it comes right down to it, uh, after a certain, after you advance to a certain stage, other books uh, that are not canonical in the normal sense, but are in Judaism, become the focus of study. And in particular, uh, a book called the Babylonian Talmud, that's not a book, but many volumes long. It talks about interpreting scripture, but mostly it's about interpreting Jewish laws set forth in an earlier book called the Mishnah. So that's what um, most um, advanced Jewish scholars spend their time studying. So devotionally, do you spend more time in the Hebrew scriptures? Like when you, when you think of worshiping God, what sort of texts do you go to, or is your worship quite different, not textually based in general? Well, worshiping God, and again, in Judaism, this is, you know, it is, uh, had something in common with Christianity for a while, but uh, now the two are quite different. For Jews, uh, worshiping God involves a kind of recipe list of things to do from the minute you get up in the morning until the time you go to bed at night. There are all sorts of things that you have to do. There, you know, Christians pray in a rather, um, you know, unimpeded fashion. Whatever is on their mind, Jews have a set prayer, and it's not short. They, you know, if they go to synagogue, they they usually, uh, uh, you know, start early in the morning, six thirty, seven in the morning, and they just go. Each person, you know, reads. Um, uh, you know, they either read collectively or each uh, to, to himself or herself uh, about an hour's worth of, uh, of prayers. Then it <laughs> gets to be the afternoon, and you go back to the synagogue, and then there's a, that's a shorter service, but it's going to take 20 minutes, whatever. <laughs> and, um, and then there's the evening prayers, and that's just prayer, but there are all sorts of other ritual acts that uh, Jews perform, and not just ritual, but there's the ethical side, too. You have to, um, you know, give money to charity, for example, almsgiving. And uh, it's, a, again, a sort of tradition to give something every day. It doesn't have to be a lot, but you have to at least uh, think to do it. Um, and in, in talking to a Mormon audience, I know, know this is a big part of uh, Mormon religiosity, too. Um, but then, uh, the, you know, the, all those uh, laws in, in the Torah that tell you, you know, not to hate your brother in your heart and uh, uh, to uh, love uh, your fellow like yourself and to love God with your whole heart. You know, these are things that uh, Jews, at least in theory, not always in practice, um, are supposed to carry out uh, every day. There are laws governing relations between parents and children or between um, neighbors. And um, I, I, I mean, I sometimes in jail, am jealous of those contemplative Eastern religions where uh, what you have to do is sit on this mountaintop and look out for the next 20 years and attain enlightenment. But that isn't Judaism. Judaism is all about the, you know, messy things of daily life, the hurly-burly that we all um, uh, are in the midst of. Um, that's where you uh, carry out, or at least try to carry out, uh, divine law. 
In your work, you've tended to kind of buck convention, in, I think, in a lot of your books. Your, I think your first book, The Idea of Biblical Poetry, which you said a lot of people didn't like when it came out because it was it was presenting some new ideas. Do you feel like you often play the role of an iconoclast of, of sorts in, in the academy when you're dealing with these with Judaism and Scripture? Well, I just like to think that uh, they're a little slow to pick up on what I say, but... <laughs> I, uh, I guess I'd, I'd hope that uh, eventually, just as a lot of them anyway, came around to understanding how biblical poetry works as I tried to explain it, uh, maybe they'll also come around to see uh, the decisive importance of these ancient interpreters in the religion that we still practice. Do you feel like you want to find something new, or is this just like in the course of your studies, as you're working on a book, it just so happens that what you're coming up with isn't really following typical lines? Well, I, I mean, if I can go back to biblical poetry, I knew what people were saying yeah. at the time. And, you know, I was really interested in poetry when I was a kid. I mean, that was sort of what I studied as an undergraduate, not the Bible, but modern poetry. Uh, so I knew what they were saying was wrong. It wasn't that I, I, I like to be... Uh, you know, um, uh, an opponent. But um, I, I figured if, you know, I just thought about it for a while, I might be able to figure it out. And it, you know, it, it took longer than I thought. Um, and it's also the case that in the course of, um, of uh, working on that, I, I, you know, I got sidetracked. I, 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 wa I wanted to just solve the riddle of biblical poetry because it didn't seem to have ri rhyme or or any kind of fixed meter, and yet it obviously had some sort of system. Um, but in the course of working on it, I became interested in what people had said throughout the ages. Um, it's uh, strange, but way, way back in antiquity, people had theories about how biblical poetry worked, much of it nonsense, but <laughs> I, uh, I kind of got hooked, and that's how I, I, one of the ways that I got into fixing on these ancient interpreters. What are some quick thoughts about writing for a scholarly audience versus a popular audience? And you've done both, but some scholars wouldn't really turn to the pop, more popular things. What are your thoughts on, on that? Well, they're a little bitter, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I've, you know, come to believe that the, the best place that you can hide a good idea is in a popular book because no scholar will ever read it, or if they do, they'll certainly never quote it. So not a lot of people quote uh, how to read the Bible, but I think a lot of people read it. Um, in general, uh, and perhaps more and more as I've grown older, I, I really want to write for um, that uh, intelligent, uh, but uh, not necessarily professional uh, reader. Um, people who really just, they want to you know, be told the, the straight dope, at least as best I can tell it, and in a way that um, they can understand it without uh, too much jargon. Uh, I guess for How to Read the Bible and, and a couple of books I've written since then, I really have a kind of, you know, twofold approach. I, I try to explain things, not simplify them, just explain them as best I can in the body of the text and then in the footnotes to refer to other people and 
try to show the reader why those other people are all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> There's been some negative responses to how to read the Bible. There, there was even some controversy at, at Yeshiva University, which is sort of a flagship of Orthodox Judaism. What are you, I just thought it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on some of the, the negative things that, that have come about as a result of the book. Well, I like to remember this moment uh, that took place um, after the How to Read the Bible had been out for a couple of years. Uh, I, um, I was invited, you know, I, I, I like to talk in public, and, uh, and I'd given a lot of talks about that book or about the subject uh, to which the book is devoted. But um, I was invited after a while to a uh, reform synagogue, uh, I remember, on 68th Street in Manhattan, and, um, uh, you know, I didn't think that the, anybody there would be terribly bothered by um, modern biblical scholarship since that figures in a lot of um, uh, Reform Judaism's study of the Bible. Uh, but in the audience, there were a lot of people there, but I could see this fellow in the back who was dressed like a traditional ultra-Orthodox Jew. And uh, I kept wondering, what's he doing here? And... Uh, and he was holding a little bag in his hand, and I thought, you know, uh, it could be a gun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, afterwards, people, you know, uh, came up to me to have me sign copies, which I like to do. And and he just kind of stood there, and, and in the end, he came up to me, uh, and he said, um, I bought your book. Uh, and I found it very disturbing, and I went to see my r rabbi, and he said I, I had committed a terrible sin, and you know the only way to atone for it would be to throw the book down the sewer. And uh, and he said, you know, not too many sewers in New York will take a 700-page book. <laughs> uh, but um, but he said I did. I I, I threw it down the sewer and. And then he reached into his bag and he, he picked up the paperback of the, how to read the Bible. And he, and he said to me, this is my second copy, will you sign it? And I was so moved by that because that's exactly the person I wrote this book for. I, I think there are people who really, Jews and Christians, who really want to know the truth and put it in, you know, what I saw as its proper, larger historical framework, which, you know, they're not usually um, exposed to. And in the end, I, d I just, you know, I don't, I don't think anyone should be afraid of the truth. Uh, so ultimately, I think um, this may be, you know, my own stupid idealism, but I think everybody ultimately wants to know the truth. They may try to spin it this way or that way so they can live it, live with it, but, um, but that's what, what we're all after, and certainly uh, it's, it's what I've been trying to say in, about the Bible. The interesting thing is some people go through the same type of arguments you make in this book and come out the other end not able to believe anymore in in God or in, in their faith. And then other people like you who have been through the exact same data and looked at the exact same arguments come through it with 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 this with faith intact. Have have you been able to identify what makes the difference for people? Yeah, I I th I think um 
I, I, all I can say is in this book, I tried to lay out um, what I think as, as clearly as possible. And, and I have to say, I went into that tunnel of modern biblical scholarship and I came out the other end the same way I went in. Um, it's true that um, when I read a biblical text now, I got all these other things um, in my head. Uh, so it can't be the kind of naive reading that I used to have. But um, I'm not sorry for that. I, um, and I don't think uh, anybody should be. I think really, um, you know, the, the basic things that we believe um, remain in place and, and are a faithful guide to um, finding out as much as we can about these texts. The last question I had before we go is, as you look back over the course of your career, and you continue to talk about these issues, and so you're still uh, still working, but as you look back over the course of your career, what, stand, what stands out to you as, as th that makes it worthwhile, that makes your, your journey worthwhile to you? What, what do you look back on with fondness? Well, I, I guess I've changed. I, I originally uh, wasn't so interested in the teaching side of uh, being a, a professor, I really like writing from from the beginning. You know, there are all these people who say publish or perish. That was never a, a problem for me. I liked writing things, but um, I guess over the years, uh, I've I've come to really um, like teaching. Also, I, I love teaching at Harvard. I thought those undergraduates were just so great, and so much fun to to teach them and after a while email came in and uh, you know <laughs> they didn't flock to my door uh, for office hours but they did love sending me emails and I I, I, st I still now I have a website and people send me emails and uh, they're mostly uh, friendly and uh, and so I, I like uh, teaching in, in that sense too and when I began teaching in, in Israel I, I just had this uh, feeling every time I walked into class, I, I would have to teach in Hebrew, and uh, and which was their native language, and and I just felt it was such a privilege to be able to to do that. And uh, even now uh, that I'm retired, I, I still live in Israel, and and retirement in Israel means you keep on teaching for no money. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so I do teach uh, a little every year, and. Uh, and I still get that same thrill. So you mentioned your website. People can check that out. I believe it's jameskugel.com. Is that right? Right. I, I, I'm a little embarrassed by the name. I really wanted to make <laughs> it. I, I didn't want to do anything. But my publisher, when I wrote How to Read the Bible, said, you really have to have a website. So we tried to get howtoreadthebible.com. But... That was already taken. <laughs> uh, but I, I like my website. I'm, I'm really trying now to, you know, think about ways to change it. I encourage people to write to me, and they do sometimes. But I'd really like it to be, I don't, I never liked the idea of a blog, but maybe something like that to make it an ongoing conversation rather than just here's what this week's uh, Torah reading uh, means. Are you working on any other books or anything? Always. Good. Do you have any coming out soon that people might be interested to check out? Uh, I think the next one is probably, God willing, uh, a year or so away. Um, 
But, uh, you know, if you reach a certain age, you don't take anything for granted, and certainly not publication. Is it another book about... Uh, it's different. It's, uh, I hate to say it, but it's kind of theological. <laughs> you hate to say that it's kind of theological. I guess you've been doing this kind of work so long that a theological book seems a little bit out of school. Right. Uh, and I should mention, too, people have heard um, cars driving by and sirens and stuff. We're actually sitting on the porch here at the BYU Guest House uh, at Brigham Young University, and I really appreciate, Jim, the fact that you took the time today. I should mention also that the time zone's quite different. You're coming over from Israel, so uh, it, it's early in the morning for you, maybe 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning, and uh, here we are in the afternoon for me, so I really appreciate you doing this. Well, you know, my wife likes to say I automatically speak in units of 50 minutes apiece, <laughs> so uh, this wasn't too difficult. So people can check out Jim's book, How to Read the Bible, A Guide to Scripture Then and Now, and he's also participating in a roundtable here at BYU, uh, the paper of which will appear in Studies in the Bible and Antiquity, which is a journal at the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, so people can check that out. Jim, thanks again for doing this. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.